Our Father, uh, we do thank you for this, your word. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to gather together as your people uh, at the start of a new year. And we do pray that you would work in us by the power of your spirit uh, to set our priorities in order uh, as we look out uh, to this new year. For the glory of your son, we pray. Amen. Uh, so Adam's uh, sort of preempted this with the, the question in the little uh, break just there, but we have just come through Christmas and New Year, uh, with all those celebrations, and so I suspect that many of us, uh, either formally or informally, uh, have moved some sort of New Year's resolution. Uh, some people are really into New Year's resolutions, some people not at all, uh, but maybe we've all taken some time to reflect and to think about how would I like my life to look different uh, in this new year. I haven't, I haven't did that. I, I don't typically uh, make New Year's resolutions, but I did this year. Uh, some of you might know that at the end of last year, uh, I was a little bit run down and I actually developed shingles. And if you, uh, if you don't know, shingles uh, is usually a sign that you're physically speaking quite run down. Your, your immune system uh, is, is quite low. And so getting shingles was really a bit of a wake-up call for me right at the end of last year uh, to take a step back and look at my physical health throughout last year and probably the preceding five years uh, and think, how do I want things to look different uh, in 2019? So I made some New Year's resolutions. So not really rocket science, uh, just basic things like get more rest and eat better food and exercise more regularly, those kind of things that I probably should have been doing in the first place. But hey, right, all things that uh, will hopefully help me to do a better job of looking after my physical health as we move uh, into this new year. Of course, the new year is also a time uh, when, when we can make resolutions to care for our spiritual health. Oh, we can take a step back to, to look at where our spiritual life and health was at throughout 2018 uh, and we can make resolutions. Uh, perhaps like uh, last year, uh, if I'm honest, I just didn't get to church regularly enough. Like this year, I want to make that a real priority. If that was your resolution and you're here today, well done. You know, January 6th, right on it. Or, or perhaps you've been putting off joining a church ministry team for ages. Right, this year you want to do something about that. Right, get involved, serve. Or perhaps you've been letting that sinful attitude or behaviour kind of uh, dominate your life for too long. This year you want to do something about that. You want to talk to someone about it. You, you want to make some progress with dealing with that. Right, the beauty of the new year is that it can function as a spiritual wake-up call for us. So we can reconsider our priorities, our whole life, and how this year we can be a part of building God's church for his glory. In Haggai's day, that's exactly what the people of Judah needed. Right? They too had kind of fallen asleep spiritually and they needed a wake-up call. And what we're going to see in this book is that through the prophet Haggai, God wakes his people up, he calls them to reconsider their priorities and he calls them to re-engage with building his house for his glory. So, but what's the context of Haggai? Right? I get this, not many of us have probably spent lots of time thinking about Haggai. It's a little bit like jumping into a particular scene in a movie that you've never seen. Right? If you don't know where that scene fits in the context of the whole movie, chances are you'll do a pretty ordinary job of understanding that scene. Right? So, so what is the context of Haggai? Where, where, where are we coming in at this scene? Uh, historically, the context, I guess the immediate context goes back to 586 B.C., 
Right, the king Nebuchadnezzar, he was the head of the Babylonian Empire. He conquered Jerusalem, he destroyed the temple, uh, and he took uh, all the people of Judah into exile. Uh, they were there until 539 BC when God raised up another empire, the Persian Empire, under the leadership of King Cyrus. Uh, and King Cyrus defeated the Babylonians. Uh, and if you want to read some books alongside the book of Haggai, you could read Ezra and Nehemiah. In Ezra chapter 1, you can read how God prompted Cyrus to issue a royal decree allowing all the exiles from Judah to return to the promised land and to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. That was in 536 BC. So a remnant of God's people did just that. They went back to Judah. They were still a part of the Persian Empire, but they did have some local leadership. So if you look at verse 1, uh, you'll see that they had these local leadership, a governor named Zerubbabel and a high priest named Joshua. Right, that was their local leadership under the overall banner of the Persian Empire. And when they returned to Judah, of course, absolutely everything was in ruin. Right, not just the temple, but the, the whole town, the whole land. Uh, so in Ezra chapter 3, uh, we see that one of the first things they did in the autumn of 536 BC uh, they, was that they built an altar amongst the ruins of the temple so that they could offer the sacrifices that God required of them. Right, that's in Ezra chapter 3. And in Ezra 4 and 5, uh, we see that by 535 BC, uh, they'd made great progress. Right? They'd rebuilt the whole foundation of the temple. Uh, but then they hit some kind of speed bumps. Neighbouring tribes, particularly the Samaritans, did all they could to oppose the rebuilding of the temple. They even wrote to the Persian Empire and said, you guys, you don't know. Like, these guys are troublemakers. If you let them rebuild the temple, all hell's going to break loose. Right on top of that, King Cyrus had died in battle. Uh, he was replaced by King Xerxes and then a guy named Artaxerxes who ultimately decreed that they had to stop rebuilding the temple. And so the people of Judah did. And over time, uh, they kind of just got used to worshipping God uh, and had this altar uh, amongst the ruins of the temple. That's what they did for 16 years. Until in 520 BC, we arrive at Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. Have a look in verse 1. You can see that it's now the second year of a different king, a king named uh, King Darius. Uh, but Judah is still under leadership of those same uh, men locally, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And what we're going to see in today's passage is that for 16 years, the people of Judah have lived in the land. They've rebuilt their houses, which are kind of symbols of their glory. But they've done nothing about rebuilding God's house. The symbol of his glorious presence with his people. So through the words of the prophet Haggai, God's going to wake his people up. He's going to call them to reconsider their priorities so that they would once again give themselves wholeheartedly to rebuilding his house for his glory. That, that's the context. That's the context historically, if you like. Uh, what about spiritually? Right, because in saying all that, I'm not saying that the, the people of Judah in Haggai's day were a spiritual mess. Right, last year we looked at Malachi. That's about 100 years later. They were a spiritual mess. Uh, but in many ways, the people of Judah are doing quite well. Right? They're, they're, uh, you could say that they're the right people living in the right place, wanting to do the right work for the right reasons. Right? They're the right people because look in verses 12 and 14, you'll see that that word remnant is used. Right? These are the faithful remnant of God's people. Right? A bit like the people who actually turn up to church on January 6th. Right? The, the faithful remnant is here. 
Right? Tens of thousands of Jews were taken into exile in Babylon. And even after King Cyrus's decree, most of them decided to stay in Babylon. They just had gotten comfortable in Babylon. They didn't want to disrupt their their lives there by trekking back to Jerusalem. But this faithful remnant did go back to the land. 42,000 people. These are the right people, faithful people, uh, in large part because they're living in the right place. They're in the land that God had promised them, uh, not in that foreign land, right over in Babylon. And they're on about the right work. Right? As soon as they returned to the land, absolutely everything was in ruin. Uh, they could have done this, they could have done that, they could have done that. Uh, but they gave themselves first and foremost to rebuilding the temple. That says something about their priorities. They gave their time, their energy, they, they even gave their money. Uh, so if you look in Ezra 2 verse 69, it says, According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 dariks of gold. Right? And there's a little footnote, if you're not familiar with what, how much a darik is. Right? Uh, it says uh, that it's, that's about 500 kilograms of gold. Now, I don't know how much gold was worth in that day, but today it's worth about $40,000 a kilo. So 500 by 40,000, do the maths, that's quite generous, right? They're giving a lot to the work of rebuilding the temple. On top of that, they gave 5,000 miners of silver, three tons of silver these people gave. At least initially, these people were heavily invested in God's work, heavily invested in rebuilding the temple. And as far as we can tell, they're doing that for all the right reasons. Not out of nationalism, not to to show those Babylonians, uh, but for God and his glory. Are the people Haggai is speaking to, are the right people in the right place doing the right work for the right reasons? And I mention all that because I think that many of you are the same. You're the right people. In the sense that you're genuine followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust him, you love him, you you really do want to follow him. You're in the right place because you want to be a part of Christ's church. And not just any church, mind you. You want to be a part of a church that seeks to be faithful to God's word, that believes the Bible is God's word, that's seeking to teach the Bible as God's word the right people in the right place, and you want to do the right work. I know lots of you. I've been in Bible studies with you. I've sat in prayer meetings with you. I know that you want to do the work of the gospel. Like building up not just not some physical temple, but the spiritual temple of Christ's church. I know that that's what you're on about. And I know, I know our motives can be mixed, but I know that deep down you want to do that for all the right reasons, for God and his glory. And not for yourself and your glory. But you guys are doing well. But still, even though we're the right people in the right place, wanting to do the right work for the right reasons, it's easy, like this remnant in Haggai's day, it's easy for things to just slide a little bit spiritually. But there can still be signs in our lives that things just aren't quite right spiritually. For the people of Judah, we see those signs in verse 2. This is the context in which Haggai speaks. Uh, This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, notice that, not my people, but these people. There's a bit of distance there between God and his people. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. 
Right? The, the people of Judah have started making excuses. Right? Always a sure sign that things aren't going well spiritually. A sign that they feel guilty about not rebuilding the temple. Right? That we, we would rebuild the temple, they're saying, uh, but it's just not the right time. Oh, I suspect that sounds familiar. And maybe it's, oh, I know I probably should share the gospel with my workmates, uh, but it's just not the right time. You know our workplace, it's a very delicate place. You know, people are a bit touchy. I, I just, oh, I'm just waiting for, for that perfect moment. Oh, I know I probably should give more money or even some money to support the ministry of, of the church that I go to. Oh, but with the mortgage and, and the, the kids, and uh, it's just not the right time. I've got to wait until I graduate or I get that promotion or, or buy that house. Oh, I know perhaps that, that I should study some theology and go into full-time gospel ministry. Oh, but it's just not the right time. Oh, I'm sure the right time will come along. Oh, I'm flattered that you think that my talents could benefit that particular ministry team. Oh, but I just don't have time. Right, maybe when the kids are older or, or my job eases up or maybe when I retire. But oh, I'm not saying there's never a season for stepping back a bit from serving God. Right? That there are good reasons for that. Oh, but often, just like the people of Judah, we've got this nagging guilt uh, about things that we know we really should be doing. And we're just making excuses. So in verses 3 to 11, God challenges Judah's excuses. Right? He does it with two main arguments. Uh, the first in verses 3 and 4 uh, is he challenges them to consider their priorities. Right? Look there, he says, uh, Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses uh, while this house, that's his house, the temple, uh, remains a ruin? Well, you hear what God's saying? It's pretty cutting. Right, he's saying he's accusing his people of having plenty of time for themselves and their houses, right? These luxurious panelled houses, while they claim to have no time for rebuilding his house. Now, the people of Judah have lots going for them, and yet their priorities are completely out of order. Instead of putting God and his work first, they've started putting themselves and their work first. Right? It's what the Bible calls idolatry. In Exodus 20, verse 3, God told his people, you shall have no other gods before me. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, Moses called Israel to love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and with all their strength. Right? If God is God... Uh, then he deserves to come first in the lives of his people. Right? We should love God supremely, as Catherine said in the kids' talk, as number one. Uh, but in subtle ways, over time, our priorities can get quite out of order. Uh, God calls us to love him first, but instead what we love first is our, the pursuit of money or, or comfort or security or, or status before others. Essentially, we love ourselves first. So in verses 3 and 4, God calls us to, to, to stop making excuses and to take an honest look at our priorities. And then, like, I don't know how you work that out. How is it that you actually know what your priorities are? 
I tried to come up with a different way of saying this because some of you have heard this before, but in the end, I think that the best way to know what your priorities are is to look at how you manage your limited resources. I typically here at DPC, we talk about those limited resources uh, in terms of your time, your talents and your treasure. I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about time in a slightly different way today, but those are three things uh, that we have a limited amount of. So, so for example, you can work out what your priorities are uh, by taking a look at your diary for each week. How is it that you use your time? Uh, Some of us feel really busy, some of us don't feel busy, uh, but the reality is all of us have exactly the same amount of time every week, 168 hours, limited resource. Uh, So typically we make time for the things that are our priorities. Uh, So how does how you use your time, what what does how you use your time uh, tell you about your priorities? I want to talk a little bit about weekends, long weekends and holidays. Weekends. God does encourage us. He even commands us to take a day off each week to rest. Right? Some of you ought to start doing that. That's one of the things I have to do. Right? Don't get shingles. Right? It honours God for us to acknowledge our limitations and take a day off to rest. Right? But for others, you may have slipped into thinking that every moment from when you finish work at around, I don't know, 5.30 on a Friday to when you clock on at 8.30 on a Monday, every moment should revolve completely around your personal comfort. I think that's basically what our culture tells us. And if we're honest, often it's just not that comfortable to go to church. 4.30 on a Sunday afternoon, I prefer to be in a beer garden, you know, watching the cricket or something. So are we going to put God first or our comfort first? It's a priorities issue. And then there's long weekends. Well, once again, I think the prevailing view in our culture is that every long weekend should revolve around your personal comfort. So when you kind of weigh up the comfort level of going away for the long weekend or staying in Melbourne for the long weekend and coming to the church and, and serving so that others can go away, Uh, It's no surprise that going away wins, right, on the comfort scale. It's not really a contest. Uh, Of course, I'm I'm absolutely not saying that you should never go away for a long weekend. You should go away for long weekends. But I would just wonder if it has to be every long weekend. And what about annual leave? By and large, I think nearly all of us should take all of our annual leave purely for rest and relaxation. I want you to hear that. Most of us need all of it. That honours God to do that. But it also honours God to do what some of you have done in the past. I know some of you have taken annual leave to, to serve at our kids' holiday club or to help run the Ag Street Christmas lunch or to go on a beach mission. As long as you're getting enough rest, I think that's a great sign that God and his work is your number one priority. That's time. What is your use of time, uh, this limited resource of time? What does it tell you about your priorities? The other two, much briefer, talents. Uh, I don't know everyone here, but people in our church by and large have incredible talents, diverse talents. Are you using your talents primarily to serve God and his kingdom or primarily to serve yourself and your kingdom? 
Right? The people at the Tower of Babel gathered together to build a name for themselves. Right? That spirit's in all of us. Are we using our talents to, to make a name for ourselves? Or, or to make God's name great? And what about treasure? Right? Yeah, if you were to consider your budget for last year, your, your statement for last month, maybe not a good month in December, but uh, what would it tell you about your priorities? Uh, once again, I don't want you to get me wrong, uh, because I actually think that lots of you who are regulars here in our church are doing a wonderful job with this. Right? Your, your priorities in order, uh, and you're serving the Lord with real generosity and sacrifice. Right? I don't want you to just hear a big stick. Right? You're doing well. By all means, consider your priorities. We don't want to be complacent. But overall, I want you to be encouraged. Right? Press on with serving the Lord as your number one. Uh, but maybe others here, if you're honest, you know that you've let things slide a bit. Your priorities are a bit out of order. Uh, so let me encourage you at the start of this new year uh, to take a, an honest look at your priorities, to, to reconsider your priorities. Consider how you're using your time, your talents and your treasure and whether it, it really does reflect a life that's being lived for God and for his glory. So we've got to consider our priorities, check that they're not kind of a bit disordered. And, and we've got to consider how our priorities are affecting our whole life, which is uh, where verses 5 to 11 come in. Right? Haggai's basic point in, in these verses uh, is that because the people of Judah have disordered priorities, they have dissatisfying lives. Right? Disordered priorities, dissatisfying lives. Uh, so uh, verses 5 and 6, Haggai says, uh, Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. Uh, you put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Uh, likewise, look in, Hag- in verses 9 to 11, Haggai says, uh, You expected much, but see, it turns out to be little. What you brought home I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and on all the labours of your hand. Now, sometimes we look at passages like this, and, and not many of us here in the kind of inner to northern suburbs of Melbourne are farmers. And so it all just seems a bit distant. We're not really familiar with this kind of territory. But actually, I think these verses give some real insight into our lives. Uh, take verses 5 and 6, for example. The people of Judah have planted much, but have harvested little. Well, you could say they have absolutely worked their butts off, but they've got nothing to show for it. Like people today who, who take on extra hours, extra shifts, extra jobs, right? always trying to get ahead in life, but never really getting anywhere. It's very dissatisfying. Which is why Haggai says, you eat but never have enough, you drink but never have your fill, you put on clothes but you're not warm. Right? Haggai's not saying that the people of Judah don't have uh, enough food or drink or clothes. He's not saying that. Yeah, I know there's a drought. I know the economy's not in a great place. That's clear. But these guys aren't in poverty. Right? They've just built these pretty good houses. 
The problem is that no matter how much food or drink or clothes they have, they're still not satisfied. That's the problem. In fact, it's not just that they're not satisfied, they're they're miserable. And that's a great picture of us. We've got more food and drinks and money and cars and houses and education and health care. We have more of basically everything you could point to. And yet we've also got more dissatisfaction, more depression, more anxiety, more suicide. This dissatisfaction also affects how we see our money. Right? The last phrase of verse 6. The people say we earn our wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. It's like us again, isn't it? It's not that we don't have money for the most part. It's just that we always feel like our money doesn't quite go far enough. Right? If only we had that, that, that little bit more, then we'd be content. We'd be satisfied. And now, of course, if you you look through the narrow lens, uh, it's us who are the cause of this dissatisfying life. Disordered priorities lead to dissatisfying lives. God says as much in the passage, doesn't he? It's because my house lays in ruins. You've chosen to prioritise your house rather than my house. Hence, dissatisfaction. But if you look through the panoramic lens, you'll see that this dissatisfaction is sent from God. God sends this. It's caused by God. What's God doing with that? He's allowing us to, to experience our disordered priorities, our dissatisfying lives, in the hope that we might ultimately wake up to our sins and turn back to him. Like the youngest son in Luke 15 who goes away, has to hit rock bottom before he comes back. That's what God's done with the people of Judah. It's what he's done, it's what he does with us, that we might actually obey him and do what he's asking us to do. In Haggai's day, that obedience was to follow the command in verse 8. Right? God says, Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured. Right, we know that, that today God doesn't command us to build a physical house for him. But he does call us to build his spiritual house, to build his church. The result God has in mind is exactly the same, that he might be honoured, you see. That he might be honoured not just by us as we put him first, but by others as they join us as a part of God's spiritual temple, as they join us in putting God first. Uh, Of course, the problem is that we struggle to do that. We struggle to put God first. So what's going to empower us to do this business of constantly reordering our priorities so that we can give ourselves first and foremost to building God's church? right For his glory, not our glory. That's verses 12 to 15, the end of the passage. They're about how God works powerfully amongst his people by the power of his words. Look in verse 12. The people of Judah tremble at God's word in verse 12. This is where it begins. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Oh yeah, you mustn't miss that because. 
It tells you that the people of Judah heard Haggai's words, not merely as human words, but as the very words of God, because he was sent by the Lord. And as they trembled at God's word through Haggai, they actually feared God. For the first time in 16 years, they actually stood in awe of God's presence. That's what it means to fear God. They they trembled before him. So God encouraged them by his word. They trembled at his word. He encouraged them by his word. In verse 13, he assures them, saying, I am with you. God delights to be among his people. He delights to be near his people when they stand in awe of him, when they fear him as they should. Judah trembles at God's word. They're encouraged by God's word. And so they're renewed by God's word. Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit, uh, the spirit of Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. Right, that word stirred up, it literally means to, to wake someone up. Right, it's a wonderful, this is what I hope happens Sometimes on Sundays when I preach, most people fall asleep, right? But I hope that on the other days when I preach, God wakes people up by the power of his word. That's what happened for the prophet Haggai. God's people, all God's people, woken up by the power of his word. So that after 16 years, they're finally moved to rebuild the temple. Right? This is where the power is found. The power for our priorities and our lives to, to be reordered in a way that brings honour and praise to God is unlocked as we, as we tremble at God's words. And of course the ultimate word that should cause us to tremble, right, cause our hearts to tremble, to, to really stand in awe of God and who he is, is not so much the words of Haggai, as good as they are, but the, the word of the gospel. What is the word of the gospel? The word, uh, the, the, the incredible news that despite our consistently disordered priorities in Christ, God chose to prioritise us. That's Philippians 2, isn't it? God in Christ puts our interests before his own. Not just in becoming a human being, but all the way to his death on the cross. God prioritised you. And he did that so that people like us, with, with all our sin and mess, might be forgiven and have the same assurance that the people of Judah had, that God is with us. Even better, God fills us with his spirit. And he is our heavenly father. It's that word does its powerful work in our hearts that we'll be able to reorder our priorities. Why would you not want to put that God first? The God who prioritised you all the way to his death on the cross. That's what will empower you to reorder your priorities, even today. And to give yourself first and foremost to the building up of his church for the glory of his name. Let me pray and we're going to sing. Uh, Gracious Father, we do thank you for your word through the prophet Haggai. Uh, We thank you that there's lots to be encouraged by. uh, That in many ways we're doing well. Uh, But as we start this new year, help us to also take an honest look at our priorities, uh, to consider the ways in which we may or or may not be putting you first in terms of our our time, our talents, our treasure in all the different areas of our life. 
Help us, Father, afresh this day by the power of your Spirit to be blown away by the fact that you prioritise us all the way to your death on the cross and that, that, might, uh, that your great love for us in that might move us to put you first, to love you supremely uh, in every part of our life, uh, to give ourselves to the building up of your church for your glory. Amen.